everybody, and welcome to the 90th ever episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, and the first podcast of the year 2019! My name's Quentin Smith, and my bugle boy, Mm -hmm. as you have heard before... Keep it buggling, it's me, Matt Lees. And that is not the first bit of hot new brass that you will have seen or heard with your ears uh, on this podcast today. no that's right we have updated our uh, our theme which previously we like to describe as uh, affordable bbc world service it's now sexy late night talk show yeah uh, we we thought it would be funny to have a sort of ridiculously 90s saxophone intro and stings so we hope you like it we like it it was done by steve davitt who is a saxophonist in a band called Marion Hill, also a fan of the show. And uh, yeah, he does his solo stuff, and we asked him to do something that sounded like a 90s talk show, something slightly embarrassing. Yeah, something a bit embarrassing. Uh, it, we've now got stings we can play with. You can look forward to them later. Uh, but most importantly, uh, because this is by now a real fan of Shut Up and Sit Down, who lives, I believe, around Philadelphia, it means he can come with us to PAX Unplugged this year. This is like more than 50% of the reason why we've changed our sting. He can come with us to the 2019 live podcast yeah. at PAX Unplugged, and he can play saxophone live on stage. Yeah, that's... It's going to happen. That's going to be quite exciting. <laughs> I can already think of so many crap jokes we can do with it. It's going to be <laughs> fabulous. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is... That's not how this works. This isn't radio. This is a podcast about board games. And boy, oh boy, uh, in this sort of new year, starting with a bang... Starting with a board? No, that's not anything. We've got... A, it's a real bumper stock. I looked at That's also list. not a thing. <laughs> it is a hell of a bumper stock. Okay, right. The list is as follows. We're looking at Blackout Hong Kong again, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago, but we've now... Matt's now played it. Yep. What do you think of it, Matt? It's all Don't right. say anything. We're going to talk about it in okay. a, a bit. Uh, we're talking about Just One, a party game that has that's just better than it has any right to be. Yep. We're going to be talking about Suma, which is a game for the Nintendo Switch. Mm. That's right. In the 90th podcast, we've broken our own rules to talk about a video <laughs> game. Uh, we're going to be talking about Quacks of Quedlinburg, a four-syllable word that we now have to memorize. Thanks, yep. Wolfgang Walsh. We're going to be talking about Schimmel Hummel, which I believe means cheating bee. Mm. Uh, that's a little card game about cheating and bees. We're going to be talking about The Thing. Goodness me, this is a long list, isn't it? Yes, it We're is. We're going to be talking about The Thing, the board game of The Thing. Some of this stuff might get bumped. Do you think it might get bumped? I don't actually think so. I think because some of it is middling. Yeah, but we, okay. Okay. <laughs> if we, get, we reserve the right to bump. Okay. Much like uh, sort of any number of our stars. We can stars. edit it so that it's different yeah we can yeah yeah, yeah wow we, we can do that uh we're gonna be talking about pipeline a game of oil the companies that make oil and the players who don't understand oil but sometimes make money anyway <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about this podcast already because i feel like there are a a real number of stone cold bangers on this list well it's okay matt because then we're gonna end the podcast by talking about gen 7 uh, let's talk briefly about Blackout Hong Kong. Sure. A game where, uh, a Euro game by Alexander Pfister, who uh, I got, which I got very excited about a couple yeah. of episodes ago. Yeah. A game about running an organization in Hong Kong after a power cut, and you have to keep the city running. You got to keep medicine and food flowing. You got to keep that food flowing, Matthew. And the reasons you were excited about it, you had every right to be excited about, because actually, like, the coolest mechanics in it are very evocative and very cool. The whole thing of having to send people out to scout and recon, but every time you do, you'll lose somebody from your kind of group slash gang, depending on what kind of unsavory types you're hiring. Um, Very interesting. Uh, We played it a bunch when we were in Philadelphia. We We played it just me and you. You played with some other people. And to be honest, I found that the more we played it, I, I, it's a very competent puzzle mm-hmm. by Mr. Mm-hmm. Fister. 
um, but it doesn't have the same kind of thematic flair as Great Western Trail. Yep. Um, uh, this is really more of a public service announcement, I think, because I got so excited about it, and you played it once, and also were pretty hype. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have the staying power of mm. um, of of other sort of um, economy management games that we recommend. Yeah. And I've, I was thinking about why that is. And for me, um, usually with, uh, I don't know, thinking about Euro games I've played a lot recently, like the fabulous A Feast for Odin. And uh, the thing with Blackout Hong Kong was that I would finish it and go, yeah, I think I did pretty well. And then I played it again and would go, yep, I sure did pretty well again. But I wasn't taking from one game into the next knowledge of what I did wrong or what I was excited to try. Mm. I kind of, in every game of it, I just sort of did what made sense. I think exciting to try is the key thing for me there because I, I felt that really it was it was very cool to have a Euro game which had a different theme of having to stock up on survival aspects or you know whether it's we're going to go and get food we're going to get mm. water we're going to get fuel but there wasn't really any thematic feeling of difference between any of the different mechanics in the game and i think i think generally that's the thing is like maybe you could build, make a really big gang of people maybe you could do this but it didn't feel different and you know like, unlike in great western trail where it's like maybe i'm going to go and ride this train really far i'm hoping to get award-winning cows that felt if enough you if you haven't played great western trail that does make the game sound completely insane yeah it does but i, I felt like when i was taking a different approaching Great Western Trail. A, it was a choice and I could choose to do that. Even though sometimes it was like, okay, I've, this feels like the right choice now. Um, but there was enough thematic difference where in this really it's like it's admirable. They've tried to uh, use a different interesting theme but I didn't feel like a euro of moving cubes around really it's like there's no difference between water and food and fuel no, and no. tools. It's just different cubes. And, and if you're playing a game where it's like wood or, you know, carrots, then that's not so bad. But in this... I don't know, it, it, it struggled to correctly convey the kind of emotional abstraction. Yes. Uh, um, it was in that, and I don't know if that's possible, but yeah. I guess it's an interesting question, maybe for minds smarter than us, that when you're dealing with farming games like Agricola, you know, the granddaddy of, of so many of these sorts of games, um, big complicated farming simulator, whether you get a carrot or a child, or mm. some bricks that you can use to make a wall, those are resources that are applied very differently. And so, of course, like you might logically assume that if you're making a game set in the 21st century, like Blackout Hong Kong, that yeah, it'll be just as thematic to have batteries and food and medicine. But actually, in the 21st century, those resources are just sort of resources when you're when you're delivering them to a population on a mm. large scale. I suppose if I was redesigning the game from scratch, the way to make those resources fit more adequately into the mechanics would be to make it on a much smaller scale. Because on a smaller scale, you have if you have just a gang of eight people, if you don't have food or medicine or batteries, that those are going to do very different tangible things to that group. Well, it's a bit like the way that sci-fi often doesn't work in, in, in game design with stories because it's harder to envision. Like A good thing about Euros is it's like, you know, oh, I can combine these two bricks to make a building. That kind of loosely makes sense and is immediately obvious when yeah. you've got more abstract combinations eh, it might not but also yeah even the fact that all this cool art and all the cool different character types i just wasn't looking at it it just became very purely mechanical uh, there is a question here i think about like how well euro games as a format really can convert themselves to like interesting uh thematic uh settings like this and how much they're best suited for just like this is a game where you're going to build some stuff yeah i mean certainly it's it's the puzzle that doesn't get any easier to unpick right like i mentioned a feast for odin earlier why is it in a feast for odin when you get like a necklace which is a bizarre shaped brick that you then put on your player board that feels matthew like you've got a necklace <laughs> and you're so proud of your necklace and it's the and it's literally just 
Mechanically, it doesn't even have an effect. It's just a different shape. The Bell of the Fjord. Oh, that's all. Doesn't, al- doesn't really work. It, you, you've got the rest of 2019 to Let's do better. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, yes, so Blackout Hong Kong. Definitely one to try, uh, but perhaps not one that we'd recommend buying until you've got, like, for example, lots of other Alexander Fister's other games like Isle of Sky or Great Western Trail. Uh, let's talk about something a bit more positive. Let's talk about Just One, which is so simple, I can't imagine we're going to be talking about it for a long time. No. But my goodness, I've been having a lot of fun with this. It's really quite good. How would you describe Just One, Matthew Lewis? I'd describe Just One by saying that it's a game where you have, the, you know when you have little place um, holders at, at restaurants or like weddings, weddings better, where it's like, yeah. you know, they're like a little bit of plastic that effectively is got a name on it, except they're blank and you have little pens and... Each time, there is one person who has a card in front of them, and it has five different words. They choose a number, and then everyone else sees that word, and they go, okay, word number four. And then they all have to write a clue. So, for example, they might be trying to get you to guess... uh, Stone. Stone, great. And so you think, okay, stone. uh, And I might then write, like, ooh... Um, like cannabis or something. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, because... <laughs> sorry, this is weird. <laughs> right, because um, the trick of the game effectively is is you write on this thing and then when you're all ready, the person who has to guess looks away and everyone shows all of the other clue givers their clues. And if there's any crossover, if two people have written the same clue or something you know, ridiculously close, those clues are then wiped out of the equation like, and a person won't get to see them. Once that's happened, you show the remaining words to the person who has to guess and they have to look for the connection between all of these words and guess what the word is. So for example, if I see, if I'm, I have to guess the word in this cooperative game, we should stress, it's a game where you're trying to get the answer successfully enough times. Mm-hmm. Everyone turns their weird little plastic play settings around and I see that my friends have written clothes torso arms and i and that, those are my clues so i guess shirt and then all my friends go hooray yeah that was correct yeah so i think the interesting space with that game is that you want to write something that's going to be not too obvious because if it's too obvious someone else will write it and then you'll wipe out the clue but if everyone writes things that are just that are kind of left so field byzantine yeah then it becomes really quite hard to work out what the word is. Yeah, and I've been... Because that is the game, you know? There's not even anything beyond, like, and try and play, like, 13 times and try and get as many points as possible. That's the entire game. And yet, there's something about it that's just joyous. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a puzzle that everyone's... Everyone gets really invested in in someone getting the answer right. It's also got a nice social dynamic where, of course, everyone knows the answer except one person, mm-hmm. which is quite tense, yeah. If you're if you're guessing, you feel tense. If you're everybody else, you feel like you're in on a shared secret. Yeah, and it's even that thing because no one ever really wants to think that they've written down something which is super obvious. When you do flip it round and you've written the same thing as someone else, you don't feel that annoyed about it because you're just like, ah, okay, yeah, we, well, both, also, we both thought that was a good idea. Yeah, exactly. It's like almost flattering that someone else also, it was mm-hmm. such a good idea, other people had it, and now you've lost. <laughs> it's really interesting, actually, and I really like the use of uh, the plastic and the, the white pens, to be honest, because increasingly I find, especially with Roll and Write Games, um, fantastic designer, I really like the <laughs> fact that it's you know a lot of the time I think actually you know what this would be better as just paper and pencil yeah like there's something more nice about the tactility of that whereas this it's like the quick pace of it of like write a thing on rub it out write a thing on rub it out yeah and the the wonderful clackiness of the plastic thing everyone rotating their place setting around yeah. is really very nice yeah no I thought so as well um if you're looking for a party game that's just like a surefire sort of crowd pleaser that might not get anyone excited but it's but is just sort of startlingly it's entertaining. super playable. I'd put it in that playable. same field as like Skull or 
cockroach poker or something like when we played it at um at the end of pax unplugged i was really tired and someone started getting out and i was like am i in the mood for a a party game or whatever and and then we started playing and it's like immediately like you just someone puts in front a a pen and a thing in front of you and then you're playing yeah and it's actually like this is fun i completely agree although like to paraphrase it or outright steal from a friend of ours um we finished playing it and i went what do you think and he went yeah well I enjoyed it, but just one is a good title, <laughs> implying he did not want to play it more than once. Fair. And I felt the same way, but then when it got brought out again later, I thought, oh, I'll play it just once more. Just once more. So that's that's how they get you. That's just one, a game about addiction, sort of. Uh, let's shift gears completely, Matthew. Let's talk about, and we're going to justify ourselves here, let's talk about a game for the Nintendo Switch. Yep. Nintendo's new video game console. Might have heard about it. It's taking the world by storm. And this game we're talking about is called Sumer. That's S-U-M-E-R. And wait for it, this gets even better. That's a reference to the ancient culture of the Sumerians. Who I'll are- have Sumer that, please. Well, if you want to get some of that, it's available in the online shop for the Switch for a, like, some money. is something that we saw being produced possibly like four years ago, to be honest. So we, we've been a bit slow to cover this. Um, but it's effectively a real-time Euro game. Yes. It's, um, which is up to four players at once. Yeah, so the designer um, is a friend of ours, we should stress, and also... W- knows an awful lot about board games. And so Suma is actually their attempt to bring board game mechanics into onto a video game console, but this mm-hmm. isn't like the adaptations of Ticket to Ride or Carcassonne that are, you know, board games you can play in a digital uh-huh. environment. This is something that takes the ideas of board games and makes them into a video game. So what this is, it's a competitive uh, sort of Euro game. It's a worker placement game, right? Which is where you have a set number of people, one, two, three, four, and you can put them on different spaces that get you different rewards. So if you put a person here, you get a brick. But also, and this is key to the genre, if you put someone on that space that gets you a brick, no one else can have it. So with Suma, we've got this combination of a worker placement game and I'm going to go for the thing everyone's played, Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. So this is what's called a platformer where all the players at the same time are released in this sort of Sumerian ziggurat. And it's like three, two, one and then you immediately start leaping and jumping to try and get to the spot that you want to get to first yeah. hoping that no one else is going for it and then this is where it gets really interesting if you've played worker placement games because unlike those games where obviously you have time to think in Sumer you might be running to the you know the beer brewing spot at the top someone else gets there first and drops a worker oh I guess I'll get a goat and you go <laughs> I don't need a goat oh no yeah it's my favourite thing about auction games or real time games in general and which is sa- you can make mistakes and the satisfaction of actually like finishing your turn first because What's lovely is you're in this little ziggurat and you have to jump around the thing, put all your workers to do the things or carry your materials around to put them in other places to make other materials. You know, traditional Euro gamey style things. Mm. But then you have to go back to bed. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're the first in bed, then you get a bonus. It's like, and there's something I love about that. We we played this a bunch, just two player, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Just head to head. It's not something I would recommend just for as a single player experience. No, no, you can play it against AI. And I've played it against AI... um, on the like portably and it's quite fun quite a fun little throwaway thing and it's a nice touch that when you play it on the switch in portable mode that all the characters have big bobbly heads oh nice <laughs> which is like so you can actually see things so you can see things but also it's, it's funny anyway um yeah you play it like multiplayer at the same time and with two players we were just having a great time shouting at each other there's some amazing level of smugness for when you manage to jump to the place that you want to get there getting the thing getting everything you want and then going to bed first and just like sitting back being like yes that was a good turn yeah and it also has a lot of 
swearing, which is so important in any um, sort of locally played game where you're sat mm-hmm. on the sofa with your buddies playing a video game. And also, like, I really like the fact that in between rounds, it allows you to basically spend some of the points, I think. Wasn't it points you bid? Uh, you end up with money, which I think is a secondary resource. Yeah, well, basically being able to then bid on special powers and special upgrades. Or upgrades um, for the ziggurat itself. Yeah. yeah. So, or like, you know, yeah, so you can make a new room and anyone can use this room, but you get to choose where it goes. <laughs> so it's like, hey, this new bakery is right next to my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else is like, oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I love it. The fact that you bid for them in real time as well, though, of being like, uh, uh, like pressing left and right to be like, how much somebody? And then seeing someone else suddenly moving up to catch you and panicking and being like, oh, I spent 25 on like, yeah, this actually, uh, you know, I always say that like auction mechanics are the domain of board games and there's loads of different ways to do auctions. You know, uh-huh. everyone can make one bid in a blind auction or you can go round and round forever. You can do closed fist sort of type auctions. Um, I just named two of the same kinds of auctions there. It doesn't matter. It's the fine. point is that uh, Suma actually has a type of auction that you don't see in board games yeah. because you have this sort of track which says how much you're willing to bid and then the timer, a time limit, and everyone can advance as far along this track as they want, which means you can completely psych people out by rushing your bar all the way to like, yeah. oh, I'll spend 30 coins. And then as, just as the time's about to run out, you drop back as fast as you can. Fast as you can. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's a really fun mechanic because often I find that uh, auction mechanics in, in games can get a little bit mathsy for obvious reasons of people really gaming it exactly to work out what is this worth and then doing that. Yeah. Whereas this, you, you could do that, but you tend to lose your nerve a little bit and... And like the fact that you can, it's not like a, a digital, um, it's, it's like an analog slider rather than a dig- digital one. So it's not like I'm bidding 13. If I press left, I'm going to bid, you know, 14. It's like it just moves constantly and then jumps up. And it means that someone like you're on 13 and someone else is on 13 as well, but they've gone slightly ahead of you. So you just tap it a bit oh, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like still 13, but ahead. And then they tap it and then you're like, oh, I'm on 14. It's very easy to get into a bidding war in which you end up like spending way more goats i think than you than you goats, wanted that was to. It. yeah no it was a lot of like oh why did i spend so yeah, many goats like, especially then because you get to the next next auction and you're like flying boots and you're like i want them <laughs> but i bought a masonry I bought a- another bakery oh, next to my bedroom yeah it's it's really um it's a really interesting game and uh the fact that it's on switch and you if you, lots of people have a switch i think it's really worth checking out yeah although the one uh thing i would say about it is it is very much like asking you to do some tricky euro game calculations of like oh but is this reward better than this you know how do you make bread oh you combine these ingredients all the stuff you do in a euro game but very much against the clock mm. um so it's not something i would throw in front of people in the same way i would like Bomberman, which might be obvious, but people should not go into this expecting the kind of playful no. local multiplayer. No, it's very much like here's a local multiplayer game made for people who really love Euro games. Yeah, basically, yeah. And um, it's a real, real interesting little treat. Definitely recommend having a look. Yeah, that's Suma for the Nintendo Switch. S U M E R. Let's talk about a game that has been exciting the Bononkas off of Matthew Lee's and myself. My Bononkas are nowhere to be seen. Let's talk about Quacks of Quedlinburg. Oh, boy. And before we start, we mentioned this in the news on Monday. ShutUpAndSitDown.com publishes a weekly news roundup where Matt and I get very excited talking about new game announcements. Mm-hmm. It's all in a written format as well, because guess what? That's the best way to consume news. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Quacks of Quedlinburg is by Wolfgang Warsh, who last year put out The Mind, a fabulous card game, which you can, and you can Google all of this on our site, uh, you know, and sh- the words Shut Up and Sit Down if you want to see our reviews. But The Mind, mm-hmm. Illusion, uh, the game I can't remember. Clever? 
Oh, again, Sean Clever, yep. yeah. And also uh, Quacks of Quedlinburg. All of this came out last year. Mm. Quacks is his big box board game. Or Quacks of Quedlinburg, as I call it. Because Quacks I, of Quedlinburg, or as yeah. we more realistically Quacks. call it, Quacks. It's got the most bonkers name, Quacks yep. of Quedlinburg. And most annoyingly, that's now becoming a naming convention because his next big box board game with the same publisher is called, like, The Tavern of Tigligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligligliglig
the odds have diminished so much, but then you think, oh, I can't keep pulling them out, and you do. Well, and- here's my, my pitch of why Quacks works so well as a game, right? It's because for sort of um, people who don't have much board gaming experience, it's like you say, it's a slot machine. It's exciting. You might pull out the mushroom. That means if you pull out a white thing next, its value is doubled, and then you pull out the white three, and you move six spaces, which is which is so exciting. You have to stop playing the game to tell everyone around the yeah. table what just happened go, to oh, you. Oh, it's not fair. You're so lucky. Yeah, exactly. But So that's, that's the game for like as a simple, accessible way to play, and that's how I often play it but if you want to like really get competitive if you have a head for numbers and figures and just want to play it as a gambling game it's the word i use in the in the current draft of the review is it's just a nemesis because like you will as a smart man be like or woman obviously be like uh oh well i I know there's only two more white things in the bag i can feel 11 more tokens which means two out of 11 chance i blow up i love those odds let's go and then you'll pull one of them and you'll go that's not fair. <laughs> but of course, obviously, it's fair. It's just there's something about the probability of Quacks, of Quedlinburg. Let's give it its full name as long as we're talking about it on the podcast. Um, there's something about the probability of it that's just so evades common sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, common sense and numbers and humans aren't really a combination well, this that, is it. that ever works. This is your, your wheelhouse, right? It's yeah. the way that humans will look at a certain set of numbers and be like, those are good odds. Yeah, our perception of odds is just completely wrong most of the time. I think what I love most about it is, yeah, you're always excited to play the next round, even if you just blown up your cauldron. And when you have a bad round, it's catastrophically bad in a fun way. It's not just the Euro thing of being like, oh, I guess you had a season that wasn't that great. It's like, my cauldron blew up. <laughs> And the other thing is, like, everyone will laugh, like, when, because it will, but then it will happen to them and everyone will laugh at them. Or, like, just some of the, the, the sheer volume of swearing we had whilst playing it, people just at the top of their lungs out of nowhere just going, Aah! and you being like, oh gosh, and looking at what they've done. And, but it's fast but enough. It's fun. But, yeah. It's like, it's not like you're genuinely not, you're only angry at your, <laughs> yourself well really, i mean you like, always make the choice to pull that token out the cold exactly and it's never it never blindsides you could have dropped it and pulled another one out yeah 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 and oh well of course that i meant you made the decision to add another token to the yeah. bag but of course you're right matthew you with your fingertips chose what token it would be yeah also yep, you yep. can't blow up out of nowhere you always know you always know you always know like okay if i keep going then i may blow up yeah it's honestly alarmingly fun uh and it has like reversible uh ingredient like rules so you can basically play with like three or four different variations in the base yes, game. Yes, you can play, you can swap all of the ingredients. There's like seven different things from dead man's breath to moths to, you know, mushrooms. All and the stuff spiders. you put in potions. Basically, yeah. Um, but uh, what those ingredients do can be swapped out. So you can play with a full set or you can swap it out for any one of four, three other sets. Yeah. Also, you can flip the player boards to play a slightly more advanced version to do with bonuses, which we won't get into now. And I think I played it about three times over the weekend of yeah. PAX Unplugged and every time I was just like, this is great. Every time I would have happily just played it again straight away afterwards. Yep, I've played um, it maybe five, six times in quick succession, which is nuts for yeah, us. But yeah, just choosing to do that just because I want to play this game again. It's a lot of fun. Um, which means I'm super hyped that the expansion, which was uh, called the Herb Witches, mm, Herbal Witches, Herbal Witches, is just bit, which sounds like a terrible brand of chewing, haunted chewing gum, <laughs> uh, is just uh, is has been revealed. It's going to have some new ingredients, some yeah. new stuff. Um, it doesn't look like a huge expansion, but frankly, I will buy anything that adds more to this game. I, I'm very excited to do our video review of it's, Quacks of Quedlinburg. It's a cracker. It's real good. Uh, should we move on? Yes. Okay, let's talk about a little card game, which had us crying with laughter, and we need to figure out if that's because we were tired or not. Uh, let's talk about Schummel Hummel. 
Oh yeah, Shumalhomal is out. Uh, I think you have to. Go- so I'm going to spell this for you because um, the name, which is Cheating B, mm-hmm. it, it's currently for sale under the German name, but it's the English rules are included, and you can buy it yourself. So Schummel is S A. Oh my god, this is the worst. Podcast I can spell content. this S C H U M M E L H U M M E L. Great, you're listening to. Words with friends. Hey, that's German. Podcast. I can do German a bit. You can. You did it, man. Uh, so this is Cheating Bee. It's um from the Dryamaga Ugly Animals line of games, which you may know from such hits as Cockroach Poker, mm. Cockroach Poker Royale, Cockroach Salad, Cockroach Soup. Um, it's a rehash of a game called uh, Cheating Moth. It's now mm. been upgraded to a bee, which we can all agree is a superior insect. Yep. Shumalhamal is a game about uh, cheating. Yeah. where players need to discard their cards. The deck is dealt out between a table of players and one player, who I believe starts as the oldest player, is uh, a role known as the Watchworm. Now, what follows in the rules explanation of Shummel Hummel is the most tedious arrangement of pointless rules in the world. It's almost like um, one of those parodies of card games where it's like, you know, well, now, of course, if you draw a butterfly, then everyone has to touch the table. But if yeah. it's a yellow butterfly, then no one can touch the table. I mean, table. one of the rules specifically is, like, if there's a, a a wasp card, then it's like, then you will have to touch it, I think. But then yeah, if yeah. the wasp has a stinger, then you don't. Which is a tiny... It's a tiny difference in the art. Yeah. We didn't actually understand the game, really, for the first time we played it, did we? It was not until afterwards that we kind of, like... It's one of those weird games where you can read the rules and play it and still not quite get it because yep. you don't understand why the rules are there. It's a, it's it's such a sleeper hit. And we ended up having so much fun with it that we were talking about doing a video review of this little small box card game purely because I think without a video review, it would just vanish without a trace mm. because it's so difficult to get your head around. But the point of all of these cards, which have different rules that everyone has to learn, is basically... Uh, the game's difficult to play, which means when it comes to your turn, actually figuring out what card to play and putting it down and then everyone else doing the correct thing is hard for everybody. Much easier then to cheat. And cheating in Schummelhummel is completely legal. In fact, you are supposed to drop cards in your sleeves, literally off the table over mm-hmm. your shoulder. But here's the catch. <laughs> and this is, So there's two rules. First off, if the watchworm sees you, you're busted, you get a penalty and you become the new watchworm. Second most important rule, if any other player sees you cheat, they're not allowed to say anything. Yeah, and you're only allowed to get rid of one card at a time. Yes. One more than you should. So we- you can play two cards at once if you want, and no one, you know, as long as, not even no one notices, as long as the watchworm doesn't notice. Yeah, which is why we also started to realise on multiple plays, oh, of course, it's all the little fiddly rules, like, oh, if someone puts down a card, the, the actual card you play has to have a flower in the corner that has a matching colour. Yeah. But of course, you can cheat on that as well. Yes. And if the watchworm doesn't notice because they're too busy making sure that Alice doesn't drop more cards down her back, <laughs> then, you know, that's fine. And that's, yep. a, that's a way to get that's rid of That's a legit card. way of cheating. You can cheat just by not following the rules. Here are the rules. You just can ignore them. Yep. And as long as, you, as long as the watchworm doesn't notice. We also realised that we were playing this around a table standing up, which didn't work so well because people could literally rest their hands on the edge of the table <laughs> and just drop cards without anyone noticing, which is not a but, usual thing. I mean, thing. to be clear, it was hilarious. It was absolutely because hilarious. we would finish the game and then the watchman would look at the floor and see about 40 cards so many cards on the, on the floor. floor. And you're like, how did that even happen? But, but we, I mean, we also realised that the watchman probably could actually be a bit militant. If people start putting their hands down towards their laps, you could be like, ah, 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 nope, nope, hands on the yeah, table. Yeah, we realised, we came to realise that the watchman should basically be playing like a police person. Yeah. Because they also do have to play the game. Yeah, they've got to play and they have to catch someone cheating because that's the only way that then they can cheat by passing on the watchworm's mantle it's it's absolutely mad and it's incredibly satisfying to just go up 
Oh, as you watch someone dropping a card on oh, the floor. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I think we are going to have to give this some more coverage in some format, whether we play it on a stream or do a video yeah. review. I mean, but, but, but it's it's incredibly funny, and I think what I like about it most is, is the, the grasshoppers. That, well, the grasshoppers is incredible, and we'll talk about that in a second. The reason I love the grasshoppers and the whole thing is it's one of these games that just really challenges what you think about what games can be. Yeah. Because we were playing it, you know, in a bar with people who play a lot of games and who know games, and people were like, what? even people playing it, like, we're going, what the hell is <laughs> just because it doesn't it doesn't seem to make any sense but in a way which is like yeah you know what like you can do whatever you want with games and it doesn't have to be serious it yeah, can just be it's wild. deeply silly so either side of you you've got a grasshopper card and the way it works is that at any point in the game if somebody has played a card in the center of the table like you know finished their turn by playing a card if you have a grasshopper card in your hand you stop the game and show it to the person that you took it from basically so if like between me and you for example there was a grasshopper card and effectively if it's not there at any point and someone put, has put, just put a card down. You go, ah, I've got the grasshopper card and you put it back and then they have to pick up cards. But what this leads to is a game in which you are constantly trying to pick up the grasshopper cards. Because there's no penalty for getting busted. Nope, doing there's it. no penalty. And it meant the whole game was literally just me and you and you just going, put it back, put it back, put it back, put it back. And then we literally going, putting it back and then immediately picking it up again. And you're going, put it back, put it back. <laughs> Put it back. <laughs> Which, of course, but then if another player plays the wasp, then we're going to be late to slap our yeah, hands down. And and then, like, the great thing was, like, I would just be picking it up constantly. You just going, put it back, put it back, put it back, until eventually you just, I'd pick it up and you'd just be looking the other way and, just, <laughs> and it would work. Um, but then whilst you're doing that, maybe the person to your left is, is also taking your grasshopper. It's just, it's mad. It's like everybody's just cheating constantly. You've constantly got so more things to keep an eye on than you possibly can. Yeah. It's just riotously funny I and mean, silly. I think it's, I'll admit that after seven years, oh, going on seven years of doing Shut Up and Sit Down now, occasionally I'm pretty grateful to have a game that just plays like nothing. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when we played um, Blood on the Clock Tower last year, which they just sent me the prototype review copy of so we can get to work on that. Oh, cool. But um, Blood on the Clock Tower, even though it's so similar to Werewolf, yes. in play, it was just so weird. And it, it made me feel like I was playing Werewolf for the first yeah. time. Yeah, I think that's the key thing, really, is like a lot of the time it's not really about structural differences or thematic differences. And the exciting thing about Does card games Does this make is, me feel like I'm new to the hobby again? Yeah, you can just tweak some something quite abstract or quite uh, quite sim- seemingly subtle mm. and this is really I think like the, the interesting thing about our job and often people go oh, well why should I get this game when I've got this game and it's like well actually because this tiny change changes everything yeah like, yeah and that's always the exciting thing is finding those things so we might indulge ourselves with a review of Shimmel Hummel uh, later this year partially just so we can teach people how to play it because yeah I mean at the very least it might be something that we try and play on the stream somehow yeah absolutely uh, so uh, let's talk about um, a new game from uh, ooh, Mondo is it who make movie posters uh, or who uh. sorry who made movie posters but are now branching into all kinds of really exciting beautiful projects in the board game space let's talk about their new project the thing ah yes the thing i played at uh, PAX Unplugged again. This is basically the PAX Unplugged podcast. It is. And I'm amazed how well I remember all these games, considering that was months ago. Sure. And in between that and, and this, I, I consumed rather large quantities of red wine and cheese because of a little thing called Christmas. Anyway, The Thing is based on the popular film of the same name. That is uh, The Thing. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Yeah, but the John Carpenter edition, not the 1950s one, where some people get stalked by a big carrot in black and white. What is that? Yeah, a thing? it looks like a carrot 
And I was like, because my mum said she'd seen it. And I'm like, you've seen the thing? Because she's quite squeamish and doesn't like scary stuff. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen the thing. I'm like, it's one of the most frightening, gory things imaginable. And she's like, no, it isn't. You also, like, are you kidding me? In addition to being freaky, it's also just a really great movie. It's amazing. Like, and this is oh. why I wanted to play the game, actually. I dragged off uh, a couple of other people to play it with me who were like, oh, okay, whatever. And then didn't realise until we'd start playing that neither of them had seen the film. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what? No wonder no one wanted to play it. The Thing is possibly one of my favourite films ever. Um, and effectively, the game looks pretty bare bones from afar. It actually hangs together a lot better than I expected. Um, it is a kind of deception game, you know, hidden role game, betrayal style game. So if you ever played... Um, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, Battlestar Galactica is probably the, the best comparison, really. It's, it's very similar to that in lots of regards, in the fact that at the start of the game, um, the only difference is in the start of the game, there is definitely someone who is the thing. Mm. It's not like in Battlestar where it's like, hey, maybe everything's fine and we're just paranoid. Somebody is a thing right off the bat. As the game goes on, you have more infections that can happen. However, it may be that the infection card gets given to the same player again, in which case there's still only one thing. Okay. But odds are maybe there's another thing. And you're in an Arctic base, is that right? Yep, you're in an Arctic base. For those of you who haven't seen the film, just go and watch that film. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, the plot of the film is basically some people are in an Arctic base and there is a thing. A thing. But it's a shape-shifting thing that looks and talks and acts like a, a normal person and there's really no way of knowing uh, if you do what they are an alien or not uh, unless until the point where they suddenly become a big alien and eat you in a horrible way um, effectively it really works as this hidden role thing because again it's like you have you get you have to go into rooms you have to perform searches and you have to put in cards to like help or hinder uh, but you have these sabotage cards that literally you can just chuck in. And it's great because rather than having a set hand of things, you can be like, ah, oh, don't take me on this mission. I've got to get rid of my cards because my cards are all sabotage cards. And actually, maybe maybe you're the thing. And actually, you've got good cards, which you then throw in the bin, which oh, is really okay. satisfying. So you played a lot of Battlestar Galactica back in the day. Yes. Um, but of course, that's a beloved... It's, it's not perfect, but that's a beloved sort of hidden role game. Yes. How does this distinguish itself? As you know, a, it's it, kind of tricky for me because I, I didn't think Battlestar was amazing. Sure. I loved it because I love the show, but I gather that really most people say you wouldn't bother playing that without the expansions, or at least one of the expansions. Sure. And um, I haven't played that, so I can't really compare it to that. But um, yeah, it was thematically really quite tight and actually it really felt very evocative of the films it had some really nice touches in the fact that basically you can either as the thing destroy the base and just mess it up as much as you want and then by doing that it means at the end of the game before they try and get on the helicopter and leave they can't test people to see who is the thing because they have a, at the end of the game whoever is in charge and whoever's in charge who has the gun can basically say look i'm going to test this person test this person test this person and then they will know for sure who is a thing and who isn't. Okay. But if you trash the base, they can't do that. And then it means they just have to pick who's going on the helicopter with them. So what do you do if, as the thing... I mean, the question with all of these hidden role games so often is, when you are discovered, mm -hmm. when when we all know that Matt, we've tested Matt and he's the thing, mm -hmm. what happens then? Um... <laughs> this is a I'm now really because this is the one the game on the list I haven't pro played so now I'm just probing your 45 day old memory I don't actually know if that came up to be honest uh, in, in our playtest sure no in the, in the playtest we played there, there, there wasn't a point where anyone 100% knew basically uh. I think especially it gets it gets muddier I think the reason it works is because it doesn't have the whole mechanic like 
that I know of. It doesn't have the whole like now you are a Cylon, go and live in Cylon land, bye bye. Yeah. Um. In this, I think it's more that like people might suspect you, but then next round you're going to have somebody else who's also a thing, and the round after you're going to have somebody else who's also a thing. So it kind of becomes that maybe people don't trust you, but then they might not trust the other people either. Oh, okay. So it becomes that thing of being like it kind of gives you a second wind of people like might not trust you for a round, but then in the next round, like when they don't trust someone else, you can be like, Hey, come on. I told you it's not me anyway. Like <laughs> let me back in the club and you can say, ah, oh, you know, I'm good for it. And in the game I played, I was the thing and I managed to get right to the end where we're going in the helicopter and I was super close to getting away with it. Cause that's, you can either win by just trashing it up and messing people up or you could just be chosen to be, you can kill everyone or you can get on the helicopter. I think. Yeah. I think you can kill everyone. I'm a bit fuzzy about it. But anyway, what surprised me was the fact that, oh, you could definitely kill, kill people, actually, because I remember that there was a really nice thematic thing in the fact that one of the items you could get was a flamethrower. Yeah. With a flamethrower, you can either test someone using the flamethrower to see if they're a thing or not, and only you get to see. So again, it's just your word or whether or not they're good oh, or bad. Oh, okay, that thing, right. So you can either test someone with a flamethrower, and you could do that twice, or you can spend both charges of the flamethrower fuel to just immolate someone. <laughs> <laughs> and no one can stop you from doing that. If you're the one with a flamethrower, you can just be like, I don't trust Quinns. I'm going to like burn him to death with a with a flamethrower. And then that would be you out. And maybe you were the thing or maybe you weren't. And it looks beautiful as well. The game, the game, the thing looks lovely, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's quite like a simple design. It's like, you know, it's, it looks very plain from afar, as I say, until you get closer and look at it and realize it's quite hard to actually make a board, which is mostly snow that looks like not yeah. just plain white. Um, no, I enjoyed it. It was um, it was definitely something where it was a. It felt like a pretty solid um, deception role, and the whole time I had you know uh, the Morricone soundtrack in my head. Dun dun. Um, I I found it quite evocative and quite fun. I think if you're a fan of the film, um, it's pretty decent. Um, at, tell you at, very, at very least you know I don't know if it's great or not because I've only played it once but I enjoyed it you know so many uh, board gamers will put on movie soundtracks when they're playing a board game like oh I'm playing an Arkham Horror board game I'll put on you know the soundtrack to whatever the Constantine movie or something nice to have a board game where you can put on a movie soundtrack and it's actually really appropriate because you yeah, can put on because it's literally the film the actual thing I mean it's just nice for me as well like the fact that they're, they're clearly you know um, there's, they're clearly big fans of the film yeah and um, that really does kind of show through in terms of like all the levels of detail of how they've framed things and how they've done things and yeah no it was really enjoyable oh lovely well one we might look forward to uh playing more in future let's talk about a game we both had our eyes on next let's talk about the first uh cut from new cloth game by uh, new publisher capstone games it's pipeline pipeline uh, leading the way yeah. it, it does lead the way what what's at either end of the pipe Oil. Money. And money. Yeah, well, actually, oil at one end, money at the... No, it's it's all it's oil. It's all oil all the way up. It really is. So <clears throat> Pipeline is a game from a publisher uh, who are known for putting out quite heavy, um, complicated games. And Pipeline is uh, so complicated uh, a game. Well, complicated isn't even the word. Involved a nuanced game of running this um, sort of oil... Uh, oil business i was gonna say oil manufacturing but that's not right it's like what do you do you get oil and then you process it and then you sell it yeah so you buy some crude oil and then you'll process it a bit and then maybe you'll keep processing it and then you'll sell it and the tricky thing about that is in this game effectively yeah you might think but if i buy this little thing of oil for just six dollars then i can make it to this big barrel at the top which gets me sixty dollars but the markets fill up 
<laughs> you know, that sentence would have been fine if you were, but the markets. But yeah. the markets. Yeah, yeah. But, but the markets, effectively. So it means you think, well, I'm going to make this much profit on there. But then someone else does that as well. And then they sell it first. And then you realize, literally, there is no demand for that now. So you just got to sit on it for a while. Or you start to realize that actually, like, everyone's going for, like, the big barrels of super processed oil. But you're like, there's a big demand for, like, medium processed oil there's a lot of money to be made in that yep i mean and then beyond this it's i think maybe how i might describe it is it's just more exhaustive than other games of that type like every part of the business is kind of just in play um Mm -hmm. on your turn you can take an action which might be to expand how much oil you can hold it might be to buy oil or to process it it might be to sell it to upgrade some aspect of your business it might be to take a loan or to acquire a machine to automate part of your business so you don't have to be there all the time yeah yeah. Um, it's the, And then, of course, the other thing, the final thing you can do relates to pipes. And yes. this is the... Interestingly, we thought the game was centered around this, but it's actually not the most... It doesn't feature as heavily as, as it does. It's more just like a, a shiny, flashy... I don't want to say gimmick, because it is really interesting. But it's, it's definitely not a gimmick. It's a flashy thing that attracts you into a game, and then the game is just really robust around it. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Is like We sat down to play it, and I was basically looking forward to like Pipe Mania. And being like, yeah, making pipes all match up. And I did get that, but it, I got that wrapped around an incredibly dense, complex, and economic puzzle. And rewarding as hell. I loved it. So I really loved it. Just, and I smashed you all into the ground with my no, you, incredible oil machine. You got like $10 more than me. That's not true. Get this man out. I'm in charge of oil now. You are king of oil. I'm not going to deny that. And you you and I were both sweating a lot. Because oh, usually with Euro games, one of us is like, we'll laugh because one of us is, um, you know, like, just having a fun time, moving a token, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the other one is having like, a meltdown. I'm trying to crunch this out. But especially because I was trying to do the, the pipe puzzle, which I'm usually pretty good at. So, but then... yes. Can I just quickly explain the pipe puzzle? Yes. So, um, you, in addition to having your royal and your holdings and your upgrades to your business and your money, you have um, a set of domino-shaped tiles, so two by one, um, that show pipes. And there's three different kinds of oil in the game, which the design of the game I thought thematically it's like, oh, is this different? Are there three different kinds of crude? He was like, no, <laughs> it's it's a board game. There's orange oil, green oil, and white oil. White oil. Yeah, great, whatever. Um, but that means you have three different colors of pipes, and each of these domino pieces that you might acquire show these different pipes turning in different directions. So you might have a white pipe running horizontally and then an L shape of orange pipe, whatever. But you then buy additional amounts of uh, personal pipe and government pipe, which come from two different sources, and slowly expand these dominoes, um, putting them next to each other like it's a tile laying game like you play carcassonne Mm -hmm. and what you're trying to do is create really long lengths of for example orange pipe but the dream is to create a sort of block which has an orange pipe going in a circle and a white pipe going in a circle and a green pipe going in a circle because then you you know you're you're using every possible square of pipe you know rather than having pipes that run off into nothing or yeah am i describing this okay yeah i mean basically it's just trying to create a network of you want you want your pipes to be as long as possible and you're trying to create a network but they all overlap and it becomes quite difficult to do that and it effectively means you have to start making decisions of being like am i okay to cap out that at five lengths of yeah because you're thinking if i put this domino here i will never be able to expand this pipe anymore yeah because you basically kind of think what matters to me also like how much pipe you need to upgrade the crude to the next stage is dependent we're not counterintuitively you're not using the pipe to transport oil 
the length of pipe you have determines your ability to process that particular color of oil to a higher level. And that's slightly randomized when you that is randomized when you play. Everything about the game is randomized <laughs> so when you play. it means like maybe for the first to upgrade like green oil from zero to one, you only need four a, length, a pipe length of four. But then to get it from like level one to level two, that's going to be six length of pipe. And it means that if you basically want to take one crude oil, because you can only use each pipe for one bit of oil at a time, means if you want to take that, it's it's, it's quite stark. I remember this game so clearly, which is considering we've played like months ago. <laughs> That's because ago. you base it, it was like you had adrenaline and fight or flight in your system the whole time. I was exhausted, the last thing we did, but I just loved it. So if you want to take some zero green oil to level two, then it means you will have to have a pipe that is ten long. Yeah. And then you look at it and you're like, well, what is it for lev- the next level, the top level? And you're like, it's another five. And you're like, is it worth trying to make a pipe that is 15 no, long? there's no and way. it's like, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's making those decisions of being like, okay... Especially because, you know, you've got the government pipe, which is cheaper and more available, but then that all gets snaffled up. And then you've got the shop pipe, which is expensive. And you're like, how much is it worth to get that tile? Like, is it actually worth a whole action and all this money for for that tile, which is going to keep this together? And then you've got the fact that you can buy machines because even running your pipe after you've built it running your pipe and getting oil is a whole turn for you you have to send your little tiny man there you with, stand you, your man you, on a pipe you imagine him turning a crank to push the like 400 tons of oil down this and he comes back with a big barrel he's carrying yeah but your whole turn is just like i'm running the pipe and it's like that feels when you've got a tiny crap pipe it feels <laughs> awful but then you can buy a machine which means that like the machine will run pipes automatically for you every turn but it costs money. Oh, but no, not only that, Matthew, because this was what uh, actually ruined a player in our game. That machine you buy that you want to connect to your pipe network has to go on top of a pipe, which means by design, it's going to cut not one, but like multiples of your pipes in half. Yep. But that could be great because if you put it in the middle of a long pipe, then it means you've now got two short pipes, which could mean you take Hang on. Yeah, hang yeah, on. I can yeah, do it. So- you, you manufacture, you, no, you refine bad crude up a little bit, but you do it twice, yes, which so may be better. Yeah, because yeah, if you've got loads of tanks, you've got loads of capacity, it is incredibly dry and incredibly satisfying. Well, I mean, you know what? May- well, also, on that note, we should mention um, that a friend of ours, Ben, who we were playing the game with, at one point turned to the designer who was sat next to us and said, um, So, what did you used to do at NASA? And um, we all laughed because we thought he was—that was a joke at like how complicated the <laughs> right, best board yeah. game is. But the guy, of course, the guy was pretty deadpan. Like he then said to us, "Oh yeah, no, mostly just uh, did programming for that." I can't remember what his actual job was, <laughs> yeah. but it turns it's out, like, oh he, yeah, you worked at NASA. He really did work at NASA. But um, despite that, and despite the fact that the game thematically, um, even though Ian O'Toole is one of our favorite artists, Ian O'Toole has given it a very sort of functional and clean-looking, but yep. not not exciting-looking wrapper. Mm-hmm. The game itself is quite fluid and is quite human because um, because of markets, basically. If I, I look over at your board and see you're refining like the white oil, mm. then I know you're going to be cornering the market on that, which means yeah. I shouldn't go there. And so I did find myself looking at other players quite a bit. Yeah, no, that is very true. You're not just building your own little engine. And what was interesting is the fact to try and work out what other people were doing, it was like, okay, well, what oil have you got in your tanks? Like, have you got loads of green oil? Like, because you had to plan ahead. 
especially with the markets because people will just snaffle stuff up and you know obviously the when there's a lot of stuff it's cheaper so it means sometimes you would be buying oil that you went they're not going to use for like you know a while and it would just be that thing if someone just bought up loads of green oil you're like okay well i'm just not going to expand my green pipe yeah or like looking at their pipes and being like all right well they're working on white oil now but what are they doing with their pipes there was also a really bizarre system of um something i'd not seen before um that and this is like so inside baseball you have to really like board games to find this interesting but the way they did upgrades i really like because yeah. um, you can buy upgrades for your business that are absurdly powerful. Like, this is quite common in Euro games. It's like, you can spend some money if you go to this space first and spend your turn. You can get this benefit to, like, I don't know, oil buying for the rest of the game. And suddenly for the rest of the game, you don't need to spend an action to get oil. Oil just flows into your system. It's astonishing. So far, so every other economy management game ever but what this does every upgrade in pipeline has three levels so if you go back to that action space in the next sort of round of the game which is next like year next year and you get exactly the same upgrade again it's almost like the flare cards in cosmic encounter you get a supercharged version of what you had if you do that a third time yeah you get something that pretty much breaks the game but it happens so late in the game yeah that you don't have much time to use it. And also, like, you have to be the person who gets that upgrade first. Which means suddenly you have to, like, dick around with turn order. Because, do you remember how turn order was? I can't remember how turn order was determined, but players could control it. Yes. It was like, I can't remember. But you could plan your entire turn in a way that meant you would definitely go first next turn, which means, and you had to do that by going last on the previous turn, which meant that you could then be first, which meant you could get the it upgrade again. It had so again. many like interlocking systems that were fascinating. And I think what I, I found fascinating about it is that usually I play a Euro game and I'm like, if somebody said to me afterwards, like, oh, how many points do you get? Like, oh, 80. Oh, you know, so, you know, if you play this right, you can get like 250 at the end. I'm like, eh, I don't care. Like in this, I think because you're building this big machine with pipes and machines and things, I kind of felt like... It took me such a long time to get my machine going. But yeah. when I did, it was like, oh my gosh, there's nothing like it. I was suddenly gone from being like, I'm so, so broke. I have nothing to just being like, I've got machines popping out <laughs> so much oil. Like, no, that's rolling in money. That was what was so exciting because for the whole first, I don't know, 30% of the game, which in a like two and a half hour game or two hour game, that's like more than half an hour, right? Yep. Um, you're working on individual dollars. You're like, yep. oh my God, that crude now costs $6. But then you sell your first crude for like, I don't know, $22. And it feels like so much money. Yeah. But then like by end game, you're like, well, I could do this action, but that only gets me the 100, that, $130. Yeah, that's the fact that the third round of the game, like the third year is only like four or five turns. It's actually like much shorter than the first one. But like you just make so much money. You it's know what like, it's like? Boom. It's like food chain magnate, where to begin with, um, you know, those individual dollars count so much. But then by the end, it's, it's about... About taking off yes. it's about creating a machine that just blasts off which is so exciting and i think that was what was quite exciting to me was it was just a case of like trying to build a machine so rather than trying to build a gradual machine just trying to build a machine that when it activated it was just going to start churning out money at an alarming rate and the realization that wanting to play it again was like yeah maybe i'll try some different stuff maybe i'll try and go for some upgrades or whatever but like being like no i could have really if i just <laughs> if i just got that machine to take off like a couple of turns earlier in the game like, I don't know what the difference could have been. It could have been insane. Could have yeah, been like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And that's quite exciting, especially because you really do have a very tangible sense of not just like points. You've got this huge machine that you're building. And if you make loads of money early on, because you at the beginning, you've got just potential the whole time. You're like, oh, I could get that. I could get that. And you're like, yeah, but you've got $15. You could buy one of these things. <laughs> you're like, but I want three of them. And if, you know, if you make some money early on, then it's like suddenly you could have this insane pipe network and you could just be... Yeah 
churning out money. It's a heck of a thing. Really uh, exciting. You know how I like my analogies, Matthew. I would, of all things, compare Pipeline with its sort of old money, oily setting. I'd compare it to like the Eurogame equivalent of caviar. And, I, and I've been thinking about this. <laughs> oily? Uh, sort of, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be classy. It's also not going to be for like most people. <laughs> it's like, it's, but if you are into this specific thing, if you want to run economy building engines, I can't. I don't. I can't think of something that's a better test. It was just. I, I liked how just simple and cutthroat it was. It reminded me of Container in some ways, uh, but it felt like way more passable and way less like uh, frustrating than Container. You know, like, and I, the frustration of Container I enjoyed and I had yeah. a lot of fun with that. But in this, it was like you did have turns where you couldn't really do anything. But it wasn't because the person next to you had started done something weird. It was just like. It was just very cutthroat and money, and the suddenly point of being like, now I've got loads of money now, and it was just like there was something very pure about it in a, in a very fun pure, way. Pure, yeah. I think in my head, caviar is pure, even though I don't like it. It's just like because they're little crystalline balls, you know, they're translucent. Yeah, but also it's like caviar's weird because it's one of those like inflated economy things. Of like, is it actually that good? Is it actually worth the money? It is yeah, pr- oh, probably it, not. Like, uh, well, sure, sure, sure. I see what you mean there. I see what you're doing. That's good. <laughs> Finally, then, let's move on to the game that people on Twitter have quite literally been pestering me to talk about after I hinted on our Instagram that we would be talking about it. We're going to talk about Gen 7 now, a a Crossroads game, and the second in our Plaid Hat series of Crossroads games, a series that started with Dead of Winter, a game which we really like uh, still, I think. There's certainly nothing quite like it. A a sort of fragile alliance co-op game where you're trying to survive a a frosty zombie apocalypse together. But It's imperfect and slightly odd, but there's a lot to love there. Yeah, a lot of good storytelling, a lot of interesting mechanics. So at long last, we have our second Crossroads game. Gen 7 is a cooperative campaign-based game set on board a generation ship. This is where players, three or four of you, work together um, as the key officers of one of the generations on a generation ship. Generation ship being a ship that takes so long to get to its destination that the humans on board uh, give birth to a new generation and then that generation takes over and they give birth. Or as we call it in the UK, Southern Rail. <laughs> it's a I, joke for like... I thought that was going to be like a booze, a sex cruise no, type. No, no, it's but, no that was joke about. We have terrible trains in the UK. They're very slow. Carry on. Uh, well, some of them are all right, but Southern is... Southern is, is, yeah. It's a joke for people who live in London. There we are. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Gen 7 is um, a game where you're going to be placing dice. Dice representing your subordinate officers. You're going to be trying to deal with problems. Um, it's a bit like, if I had to draw an analogy, um, if you saw my first Martians review um, a couple of years ago, mm. um, it's a game where things are going wrong in your sci-fi habitat. Yeah, you have different aspects of the ship which are breaking, and it means then you can't sit in that seat and do something there because it's broken. And, um, and the the fragile alliance elements that it borrows from dead of winter is that there is a common pool of resources processes and and nuts and bolts and stuff um but everyone also has their private supply and everyone on top of that has things that are going wrong with the ship but also you've got your private little tasks that the the ai assigned you to do yeah the idea of like you've been given these tasks from the ai that mainly there to keep you busy because you you can't you've got to keep busy it's yep. important to keep busy let's not think about let's not think about the traps. fact that you're going to die in space keep busy and so yeah like you can get upgrades you can effectively like uh, maybe be slightly less than 
perfectly helpful with your other crewmates. And then because of that, you will get promoted, which will give you some a little upgrade in terms of your abilities, but also means you get more votes whenever you get a big story decision on the ship and you have to make a choice. You will literally get more votes than other people because you outrank them. Yep. And honestly, we played this at Gen Con uh, last year, and we were very excited about the idea of it. Basically, we played a demo for half an hour, and we thought this is quite fascinating. We had some really interesting stuff come up on cards while we were playing a lot of narrative stuff. We were really excited for how the game would evolve across the course of the campaign, and fundamentally, the idea of it being like this idea if it's like a colony ship, and this idea of like. Uh, drift of values of being like, are you going to stick to the line and be super regimented to keep the humans alive? Or are you going to allow for some creativity and some heart to unfold, knowing that it might actually put the human race at risk? Interesting ideas. Uh, Unfortunately, 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 having played the game a bunch, it's not very good. Yeah, I think this is probably the most, in terms of my the hopes I had for it and then my actual experience of playing it, I think it's, it's up there with, well... It's certainly not... It didn't annoy me as much as First Martians. Sure. Um, First Martians was a real disaster thanks to the rulebook and a couple of other things. But yeah, I would absolutely not tell anyone to buy Gen 7, especially not because I think it comes in at about $95 or $100. Mm. This is an, an enormously expensive box that... We didn't have much fun with it all. No, and it's an incredibly frustrating thing as well because it's a game that when people have been asking us over the past year, like, oh, what are you guys excited about? It's yeah. a game that I particularly have been saying repeatedly I was very excited about. And then, you know, this is an important reminder for everybody, basically. That's a fun question to ask us, and we will give you an honest answer, but don't buy games based on that because, you know, you play a half an hour demo or something. And it's interesting as well that when we started playing and going through, we got very lucky with the cards that we were drawing from decks that we shuffled. Like, so things oh you mean during our play during test. our play test yeah our play test made the game <laughs> feel so sorry because people have been picking me up on language recently so yeah. you're talking about when we played that at gen con yes. last year we so had we had pretty much a perfect experience of the game yeah we did um we had a perfect experience and a lot of the mechanics and ideas we were excited about just aren't really explored or coming to fruition in the game no so um i mean i'll start with mechanics first um the the game you are playing of assigning your dice around the ship and solving problems um your our first First game of it and to some extent almost our second um, mm-hmm. were relatively interesting but as we just got further into the campaign realizing how much this game did not evolve did not change yeah there are all kinds of exciting envelopes that you open to release new on new components into gen 7 um seeing what was in those envelopes was really pretty disappointing to me yeah. it didn't change the game enough that uh by the time i was playing our third game of gen 7 in a seven game campaign i was just thinking oh my god i don't want to play this game again no yeah we got i think five in and it was just like i don't want to do this anymore especially because of the fact that unfortunately the the biggest disappointment for me and we won't go into spoilers for anyone who does care but really like it, it looked like it was going to be an interesting exploration of a simple but really quite odd theme and in reality it has a story which tries to do all sorts of things and tries to do stuff simultaneously tries to do too much but also does too much at a glacial pace that means like when we got to the fifth mission in the game i think which is after about six or seven hours of sitting and playing it it felt like this would now be the end of a prologue in a sci-fi film like this would be the first 10 minutes of a film and they're like there's your open now it's time for the story which is crazy for a game which is supposed to be a, a story-based game, but also the fact that really the core mechanics of the game, as the story unfolds, make less and less sense. Yeah, and and that the the impetus for carrying out and playing the game in the way that the game is built, just you think, really, 
Like, you kind of expect it to just be like, now open this envelope and the entire game is different. Yeah, sure. So the reason that we always held up uh, Dead of Winter, uh, well, highly as a story game was a couple of things. First off, the story between the players of who's betraying who and how do we feel and are we going to cast this guy out of the colony could be really, really interesting. And the second thing that worked in Dead of Winter was uh, the Crossroads cards that told you a lot of backstory about the characters under your control, the humans. Now, both those games were completely separate, but... They were pretty interesting. They both worked functionally. Gen 7 adds a third game to that because you still have characters that are coming up on the Crossroads cards and you're making decisions about them. That, for me, was the strongest part of the game and overwhelmingly diluted in the box. Like, we got hardly any of their story. Yeah, no, we didn't. And I mean, there was more to add, but again, it was just the pacing of it was just bonkers. Yeah, so to to clarify, the third kind of story the game adds is this campaign book. It's that when you do certain things in the plot, you now have this enormous book which is adding dramatically i would expect to the price of the game Mm -hmm. um whereby you flip through pages and you read or choose your own adventure so now we've got the plot between the players which quickly falls apart the characters under their control which you don't get nearly enough of and this campaign book which has the ridiculous thing that part of the appeal of gen 7 is that there are many different stories to tell Mm -hmm. based on decisions you make your plot forks along several different sort of possible avenues some of which fold back in the classic video game way now, Matthew, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had friends and you played Gen 7 campaign once and saw one of the paths through that campaign, would you then play it again to see another path? No. No, me either. It would be, that idea is kind of reprehensible to me based on like how tiring I found it just to get halfway through one of the campaigns. Yeah. So that means so much of your effort into telling a story is going into plot lines that players aren't going to see. Yeah, and honestly, there was a fascinating idea in the fact that I actually like looking through some of the cards that we had for the kind of crossroads cards and reading through the whole book, basically, at the point at which we thought, you know what, we're done with this. I, you know, I, I flipped through and read a lot of the book and realised, actually, it's got some cool ideas. The fact that it's like this, not like... Sp- it is like, you know, going down different forks of avenues, but it's all this one reality and it's this one overarching story and it's just about how you fall through it and discovering things at different points. Interesting. The fact that a lot of the story is very carefully seeded and teased through some of the crossroads cards and like thematically drawing you in and giving you kind of like, you know, clues, bit of Chekhov's gun, etc. about the overall thing. Great. The big problem is the fact that the game is not that interesting, especially, you know, it's, it's fun to play once, but then, like, to play it, like, eight, nine times. I mean, yeah, to, by which you mean play one game of it. And part of the fun of that is that in you, if you play the first mission of a campaign, it's like in Seafall, which we saw a couple of years ago. To play a big campaign game once is partially exciting because you're just daydreaming about all the secrets and mechanics that will be awaiting you. And in both Gen 7 and C4, once you start sort of playing the game, you know, come on, give me that mechanic. It Like, the reveals are only ever disappointing. Yeah, and also I think you were right to point out when we were playing that so many of the... the- the beats and reveals and things are, are to do with these characters in the story that are like the coolest characters in the story are like characters in the book yes that you look at and so they're not even the characters that you are or the characters that you're friends with or like you know following around no it's this it's this very uh wobbly thing whereby we instantly as soon as gen 7 started all fell in love with the uh, the character you are you are given one character who's under your control yep they have the best uh sort of backstory the best writing they're the most human the most plausible and then they play absolutely zero role in the plot yeah you know the thing is i liked a lot of the writing in gen 7 and i think that's what originally made me think hey this could be really cool um it just doesn't it's just i I don't like to say this because it seems like it's just dismissive and derogatory but it's just a bit of a mess like you know you you've got this 
game system which just doesn't hold up with the story and with the context and doesn't feel like you know we got to a point where it's like really like, are we still doing this task yeah, like, when really? we still this to do other that thing has game? happened it's like you know like it's you know in, in pandemic legacy it's frustrating when it's like oh we still got to keep making these little supply centers or whatever like you know you kind of think but like, it's like yeah you do yeah because okay. it's your job like it's annoying that you have to do it in pandemic legacy you're like we still have to do that and it's like yeah you do work for the cdc it's your job to do that even though the world feels like it might be falling apart in other interesting ways do your job fair but in this you're like i don't really and even like the whole mechanic of like oh i'm gonna be slightly more self-serving to get promoted that just makes less and less sense immediately it felt like they had some cool game mechanics and then they had an idea for a cool story and they just don't match yeah and yeah i'm not gonna try and reverse engineer exactly what happened in the design of gen 7 no no, no absolutely not it doesn't really matter like, no sure but yeah it, what does matter i think to me is that if i saw someone holding it in a shop i would try and steer them away from yeah it. no absolutely it's um it was very disappointing yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah. It, for lots of reasons well on that cheery <laughs> note and sorry yeah sorry to people if because we have we have talked it up a bunch we have said like based on our demo that it was great so if you did buy it and you're like oh man i've seen some people saying i bought it and everyone says it's rubbish but i'm loving it great good for you have a good time but if you did buy it off a recommendation i'm really sorry about that um but also do bear in mind that it's not a review unless it says review yes which is a really important thing that's a bizarre thing we've had over the last seven years i'll like tweet about something and someone will go yeah great review it's like no not a review (laughs) it's not we have it does matter because you know we won't say something is a review unless we feel like we have made a concrete judgment that we're willing to stand by yeah even the podcast you know we talk about so many games on this podcast but and people will say oh you know i like that review like of it review on the podcast. It's, like, it's not a review these are just impressions we should probably <laughs> clarify yeah that. no that's important to clarify and like you know don't that's not to say don't get carried away with hype sometimes and go they're excited about this i'm gonna be excited about this. i'm gonna pre-order it but just know that that might mean every now and then we get it wrong. Well, the good news is that we have a run of really pretty exciting uh, oh, gosh. video reviews uh, coming up. Because uh, yeah, if you some keep... of the stuff we've talked about today, I'm we've got some amazing stuff for you this year. Not just that, man. Like we, if you don't often go to our YouTube channel, uh, you probably I, I would think it's worth a visit. Not just for great reviews we did last year, like Brass Birmingham and Root and Welcome ooh, to. Ooh. But we've got uh, video reviews coming up of uh, Treasure Island, Quacks of Quedlinburg, and... Ooh, I'm, I'm looking forward to... Ooh, I'm really interested... No, what's it called? The game with the hexagons where you oh, sometimes... Yeah, uh, tower. Monolith Arena. I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, Monolith Arena is a heck I'm of a thing. We're going to play that some more and see if it wants the video And we're not going to do questions from the big, amazing, roughly mailbag today because... This is the first time me and Quinns have been in the same building again since the end of last year because he's been away doing some work in India and I've been in London toying away on videos and we're going to go and play a board game. Because we're going to play a game right now. What we do. Oh, I, f- I need to, I forgot to talk about franchise. I need to talk about franchise. Well, Matt, I need to go to the toilet. So, so we've many all got things we need to do. Franchise, I want to play again. You know what's funny? Oh, oh. You, you got so excited. Got so excited. You knocked I, over the podcasting I gear. punched the podcasting gear. It's really fun you living in Brighton and me getting to visit, but it means occasionally you'll post a photograph on the Instagram and Twitter feeds about yeah. playing a board game, yeah. and I'll be like, it's not fair. I want to be playing that board game right now. Well, let's make up for lost time by playing some great yeah. games tonight. The franchise was pretty cool in the time where I played it for like 10 minutes. I was yeah. like, I think this might be great. Hey, it's good to be back with you, Matt Lees. It's let's, good to be back too. Let's make some content. Games. Bye. Bye. Bye.